there was a group of tourists that went to this little village, and they're out sightseeing, and they're trying to get a feel for uh, the town, a beautiful little town, one of those small towns. And these tourists, they come up to a group of old guys, and the old guys are probably sitting having coffee, because that's what old guys do. And they say, hey, old guys, were there any great men or women that were born in this town? And the old guys look at them kind of crazy and like, what are you talking about? Uh, no, there's no great men born in this town. Only babies. Only babies are born in this town. And it's true. The question that we have to wrestle with is, is when we look at the great men and women, we look at people that we admire, like what makes them great? If they're not born that way, what makes a person great? Absolutely, it probably deals with, with your character. It deals with the skills that they have. Uh, but I think when we're looking at the idea of what makes a person great, I also want to have us think about these, this idea of defining moments. That defining moments are placed in front of people, and great people step up and respond in those defining moments. As we've studied the book of Esther, here's what we know about Esther. We know that she is not one of those great people that we would look up to at this point in the story. We know Esther, she was orphaned as a child. Uh, her parents died, so she was raised by her uncle, or excuse me, her cousin Mordecai. She's an orphan. We know that uh, Mordecai and Esther, they're, they're the kind of people who claim to love God, but there really isn't much evidence of their faith, right? These are people who say, yes, yes, we love God, but their life is full of compromises, where they say this is what they believe, but their actions don't quite match up. Uh, we saw that she was a gal who was taken to the king's, to the king's uh, palace. And she had a one-night stand with a king. And she impressed the king more than everybody else. And so she becomes queen because of that one-night stand. This is Esther. She's not that great at this point of the story. But when we get to the end of the book, Esther's a hero. Esther is one of those people who are like, yeah, go Esther. I want to be like that. And that's because there was a defining moment that was placed in front of her. That changed the course of her life. That allowed her to become someone that we remember for all time. What are the defining moments in your life? Start thinking about your life. What are the defining moments in your life? What are the, the forks in the road that you came to? And you had to make a choice. You had to determine, uh, you had to turn a corner. And that dictated what the rest of your life was going to look like. Determined your future. Maybe for you, maybe it was, well, deciding what to study in college, what degree to pursue. Maybe for you, it was, which person should I actually marry? Or maybe, maybe I shouldn't marry this person. And that has, has dictated where your life has gone. Maybe for you, maybe there was some sin, something that you went into and you thought, well, it's not that big of a deal. And that sin has carried you into a way that you never imagined and changed the course of your life. Sometimes these defining moments are a choice, and sometimes these defining moments we don't really have much of a choice in. They're kind of by happenstance, where you get the biopsy result. We've got some bad news. You find out that the company has closed and your job is no longer there. Someone that you love, someone who is committed to be there with you, they leave. And these things are out of our control, but they are defining moments that shape and direct our lives, that leave us completely and totally different. For me, I remember when I graduated high school, like 35 years ago. It wasn't quite that long. It was a long time ago, it feels like. I had become a Christian the year before. And that spring before I graduated, I made the decision to leave the Mormon church. And so they created all this tension in my life, all these different things. And I had all this relational tension. And then I found myself in some sin where I was 
literally over, over, over my head. I was just overwhelmed with what was going on in my life. And I remember I went to this camp, and we're at this lake someplace up by Spokane. I don't know where we were. And that was one of those defining moments for me, a fork in the road, where I had to make a decision. You know, I could go back to, to the way I grew up. I could go back to, to, to what was safe for me. In fact, if I would have gone back, I would have had a college education given to me. I would have had, had comfort, and, and it would have been safe for me. Or I had to make the choice. Am I going to go all the way, and am I really going to follow after Jesus? And I made the decision that day. On the banks of that shore, I remember I threw hundreds of rocks wrestling with God. God, what are you doing? And I threw all these rocks and I made the decision. Listen, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm going to follow you. No matter what risk, no matter what circumstances come my way, I'm going to follow you. And this is where we kind of find Esther in, in this chapter. Where we begin to look and as we study the book of Esther, we've talked about this idea of providence. Uh, we said, we've defined providence this way, is that God rules the details of everything. He rules the details of, of, of history. He rules the details of people and times and places. He controls all things for our good and for his glory. We understand our good. Sometimes we don't know what's good for us, right? But ultimately, God does. And God is working things out in our lives for our good and for his glory. And today in chapter 4, we're going to wrestle with what does it look like for God to be in control of all things. And then also for our own personal responsibility. How do our decisions, our choices play out with this idea that God is sovereign and God is in control? I want to pick up in chapter 4. Remember where we left off last week in chapter 3. Uh, Haman, who's the, the, the bad guy in the story, he doesn't like Mordecai. And so he goes to the king and tricks the king into making this horrible command that, that in 11 months, all of the Jews, there are 15 million of them, all of the Jews are going to be killed in a major genocide on a single day. Men, women, old, young, children, all Jews are going to die. And so that's where we pick up in verse 1 of this chapter. Mordecai. He, he, he learns about what's going on. He hears about the decree. And there's this crisis. There's this crisis going on. Spiritually, politically, racially. What is happening? I mean, this is like Hitler before Hitler. Right? So verse 1, it says, Mordecai, he was in mourning. He had this idea that, that, that he is, he's in mourning. And he's going to mourn in a very public way. He is publicly identifying himself with the people of God. It says that he tore his clothes, he, he put on sackcloth and ashes. This is a common description in the Bible uh, for people who are uh, expressing grief. This is the, uh, the, the way that you would express a grief. Hey, something bad is going on and this is how I express my grief. It's a very public way where he's going to cry and he's going to weep very bitterly in, in, in the public for all to see. In fact, the Persians, this is where the story takes place in Persia. The Persians would have been familiar with this kind of uh, weeping and public mourning. Uh, they, history says that when they lost the war to the Greeks, uh, that they responded in a very similar way, where they put on the sackcloth and ashes. And I want you to notice in verse 3, it says, not only is Mordecai going and, and publicly uh, mourning this way, but Jews throughout the entire nation all responding this way. I mean, just, just imagine, just imagine that if our country were to make a law that says all Christians, if you claim Jesus, you're going to die in 11 months. You can imagine kind of the widespread grief that would be going on across the country. And that's what's happening in 
Persia in this story. So Esther hears what's going on. I don't know, I don't know how she finds out what Mordecai's doing. Maybe she watched the news. Maybe there's a newscast of what's happening. Now she hears what's going on. She, she lives in, in the king's harem. So there are hundreds of women that the king has to choose for, for whichever night he pleases. He, she lives in the harem, and, and, and she's completely unaware of what's going on. She doesn't know. She just knows Mordecai is, is grieving. She doesn't know why. Some way, uh, whatever situation she's in in the harem, there's this space where she doesn't have the ability to regularly communicate to Mordecai. So she hears Mordecai is wearing sackcloth and ashes. She, he's, she hears he's mourning publicly. And so here's what she does. Now, for you young people, you're not going to understand this. For you young people, before there was Twitter and Instagram and social media, there was something called the grapevine, right? And if you live it older, you know what the grapevine is, right? The grapevine is you tell one thing to one person, that person goes and tells someone else. Like I remember back in fifth grade, when I found out through the grapevine I had a secret crush, that was a great day. That's the grapevine, okay? The original social media platform, the way you communicate with people. And so what Esther does is she calls one of her servants through the grapevine and says, listen, I want you to go and I want you to bring these clothes to Mordecai. You know, he's out there, he's wearing the sackcloth and that doesn't look very good. It's not, it's not hip. So go bring us some clothes to change. She, so she, the, the servant goes and brings it to Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses it. He says, no, I, I don't want those clothes. He says, actually, I want you to, to go back to the queen. Again, this is a grapevine. I'm going to send you back, and I, and I want you to bring something to the queen. I want you to bring a copy of this decree. I want you to bring a copy of what the king, your husband, has decreed that all the Jews are going to be killed. So the servant responds. The servant goes back. And brings a copy of the decree. And then as, as, as Mordecai is preparing to send the servant back. Then Mordecai realizes something. You know what? What are we going to do about this horrible genocide? What do we do about this impending holocaust? And Mordecai thinks, wait a second. My cousin who I raised. Wait. She married the king. She married the king. She's one of his wives. Maybe she could go in front of the king and speak in our behalf. And so actually that's what verse 8 says. That Mordecai tells the servant, I want you to command Esther to go before the king and plead on our behalf. And how is she going to respond? Mordecai's got the solution. Hey, this is how we're going to get out of this. And here's Esther's response, verse 11. Again, she sends it back to the grapevine. She says, listen, Mordecai, the law says that no one is allowed to approach the king unless they have been invited. And if you do, there's a immediate consequence of death. So there's soldiers there and they've got they've got a sword or they've got something. And if you approach the king without permission, boom, like that's your death sentence right there. And so Esther says, hey, hey, Mordecai, like I can't do that. I can't just go before the king, despite the fact that I. I guess I could be a perfect candidate to go and do that. There's this law, and I'm afraid of this law. Apparently, Esther and the king have been married for five years. We know the king, he was a very perverted man. He had hundreds of other concubines that he could choose from. The relationship is cooled. And Esther says, hey, hey, Mordecai, like, the king hasn't even called me in 30 days. It's been 30 days since I last even saw him. So I can't just go and approach. And if you picture yourself in, in, in Esther's shoes... What are the feelings that Esther's feeling right now? Like all these people are going to be murdered. 15 million people. Mordecai says, hey, Esther, 
Again, this is a father figure. Esther, I want you to go before the king. I want you to plead on our behalf. What are the emotions that Esther's feeling? Fear. I'd be afraid. I'd be completely afraid. And that's what she is. She says, listen, I'm afraid. I can't do this because if I do, I could die. And I just, I'm, I'm afraid I can't do it. Now, one of the things I always want to caution, uh, caution us as we read the Bible, it's easy for us to read the Bible and look at that and say, well, man, I'm so glad I'm so much greater than Esther. Like, if I had that opportunity, there's no way I would turn that down. If there's 15 million people and their lives are on the line, there's no way I would tell Mordecai, no, I'm afraid. I'd go and do it. But see, there's a difference between Esther and us. Because you and I, we are reading this chapter and we're surrounded by friends in a safe and unthreatening environment. There's no armed soldiers around us waiting to take our life for us doing the wrong thing. It's easy for us to be brave and think how, how brave and strong we would be when we're protected and secure. We have very little to risk or lose right now. And so... This is where the story is going to really pick up. This is where I want to, the next couple of verses, this is where I want, to, uh, I want to have us lean in a little bit. Because Mordecai, again, this is a guy who, who, who claims to love God. And you haven't seen a ton of evidence of his faith. But this is where Mordecai is going to teach us a little bit of theology. He's going to help us wrestle with these two ideas where you've got the sovereignty of God over here that says God is in control of all things. And then you also have this idea there's a personal responsibility. Well, 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 I have decisions to make. I have choices. How do these two things relate together? What Mordecai is going to do is going to help us to understand how these defining moments, the defining moments in our life, how they intersect the sovereignty of God and personal responsibility. And those two things can change the course of our life. Verse 12. Verse 12, and it says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Remember, she was afraid. She said, No, Mordecai, I can't go before the king. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Again, this is a grapevine. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's three things we're going to look at, those couple of verses that help us to understand uh, how uh, God's providence and our own personal responsibility relate to one another. And the first thing we learned in those couple of verses is, is the safety and the control that we think we have for our life. We think we can control our life. We think we can make our life uh, insulated and secure. Listen, your safety and your control is an illusion. Do you understand that? I mean, like, here's Esther. She's afraid to go before the king. She says, no, I can't do this. And here's what Mordecai says. He says, listen, Esther, don't think that just because you're in the king's palace. Don't think that you're just because you're the queen. Don't think that you will escape this genocide. Because even if you are silent, even if you refuse to reveal your faith, even if you refuse to go before the king, you and your father's house will perish. And I read that and I thought, well, well, how? What's going to happen? And it's almost an unsettling remark. It's almost as if Mordecai is saying, hey, listen, you either go before the king or I will let everybody know that you're a Jew. Kind of an unsettling remark. Well, I don't know exactly if that's what that's referring to. But you're kind of left with this idea where, where Mordecai says, listen, either you go before the king and you face possible death or you don't and you face a different possible death. And that's the point I want us to point, make. 
is that the safety that we try and, and, and secure for our life, the control that we kind of try and control the way things are happening, it is all an illusion. There's no way for us to control our life to make it safe and easy. In fact, parents, you see this. Parents, you have this desire where you want to build this little a bubble around your kids, right? You put them in, in that bubble wrap, cover them all around, and you make sure nothing bad ever happens to them because you want to guarantee that your kids turn out great. I mean, I, I've got five kids. I mean, my wife and I, when we were younger, we read every parenting book there was. We would look at every, uh, every older couple who had raised their kids. We would interview them. Hey, what worked good? What didn't? Because you know what I wanted to find? I wanted to find the magic solution, the, the, the magic thing. If you just do these five things, your kids will guarantee to turn out great. Well, we search high and low. Listen, there is no magic plan. Like, parents, do you understand that? There is no magic plan. And as much as we try and control it, we don't have control. In fact, you look at parents who have done everything right. You look at parents who did everything they were supposed to do for their kids, and their kids still go off the deep end. And then you look at parents, and you're like, man, you've done nothing right, and their kids turn out to be saints. Like, there's no, the, the control that we think we have is just an illusion. It's a myth. Because at any moment, we try and control our lives. We try and insulate our lives to make sure nothing bad happens. But at any moment, we could get the phone call that changes everything forever. At any moment, you could walk into work and find out, man, my company's downsized. And I no longer have a job. That as, tr- as hard as you try, as hard as you try, there's no guarantee that your life is going to be easy. There's no way that you can guarantee that you're going to be safe from hardships that come. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a guy, that, a missionary by the name of Jim, El- Jim Elliott, who's a missionary to Ecuador, who was martyred, who was killed in his 20s. And one of the things that Jim Elliott said is this. He said this. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He says he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. You know what you cannot keep? You cannot keep your life. I mean, it's one of those things, it's one of those things when you're younger, that's harder to understand. Well, I'm going to live forever. I'm so young. Listen, the older I get, like every morning it's a reminder that you cannot guarantee your life is going to stay good. Like I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I pull a hamstring. Like anybody else know what I'm talking about? Like we can't possibly hold on to our life. We try and do it, but we can't hold on to our life. It's out of our control. And he said, he's a fool who tries to hold on what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know what you cannot lose? Everything that we stake in the kingdom of God, that is what we can't lose. Luke chapter 9 says, Forever, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Well, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I mean, think about that. You can sure try and, 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 and control things that happen in your life and make that safe little comfortable bubble around you. The scripture just said you lose your life unless you invest it in the kingdom of God. You know, you know what has, I've done? Like, I've read the Bible from the beginning to the end. Like, I've read from the very first page. I've read all the way past Revelation chapter 22, which is the last chapter. I've read all the way to the maps in the very end. 
And you know what's clear? Every time I read it, God wins. Every time I read the Bible, God always wins. The only question is, are we going to try and save our life and control it and lose it? Or are we going to invest our life to be a part of what God says is eternal? To be a part, to invest it into the kingdom of God. The safety and the control we try and live for our lives, it's an illusion. The second thing we're going to see in this chapter, we're going to see that Mordecai has this incredible confidence in the sovereignty of God. That God's will will always prevail. That God's will will always prevail. Again, here's Mordecai. Mordecai, we haven't seen him to be a very godly person, right? Like, we haven't seen Mordecai pray. We haven't seen him read his Bible. We haven't seen him go to church. We haven't seen him sing a song. We haven't seen him do anything religious at all. But God is still working in him. And in verse 14, this is what he says. He says, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, don't worry because relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Again, he's got this hopeless situation around him. The king's edict cannot be reversed. Like when the king says this is law, like it cannot be reversed. That's Persian culture. He's got this hopeless situation, but somehow he's got this remarkable confidence. God will prevail. And where does that hope come from? How can he have that unshakable hope? Hey, God will prevail. Because he knows the promises of God. He knows that God is faithful to his people. He knows that God's will will always prevail. He trusts, despite how broken things are and how difficult things are, he trusts that God still reigns even over Haman's wicked heart. He trusts, listen, Xerxes, he's a perverted man. He trusts God is still in control over King Xerxes and his perverted power. He believes that God is still in control over Esther's fear-filled mind. He believes, again, this idea of providence, that God rules the destiny of his people and that when God promises to save, that God will actually do that. There's an illustration I read this week by a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. I thought it was uh, fitting for this context this, this morning. A.W. Tozer said, imagine there's a large ship, a big ship, a cruise ship, just a big ship, all right? And, and, and the ship is going, the captain, captain controlling the ship, he's determined to get the ship to its, destin, its destination. There's a Pacific port. Hey, we're going to go here, and I'm going to do everything I can to get the ship to this place. And they're going to encounter rough waters. They're going to have a long journey. They're going to have all these different things. But the captain is determined, I'm going to get the ship to this place. And the captain, in control of the ship, is kind of like he's sovereign. He's got control of the ship and where it's headed. Now, on the ship, there's a bunch of passengers. And the passengers, they're free to do whatever they want. They're free to make all sorts of decisions, good, bad. Regardless, the passengers are free to make the decisions. But even with those passengers being free, the captain is still in charge of the ship. The captain's will will not be overtaken. He's going to guide that ship to their desired destination. The captain of the ship represents God. And God's got the ship, and God's going to take the ship, and he's going to bring the ship to where he wants it to be, which is where the Savior of the world is going to be born. 
That there's going to be this baby who's born to a virgin, who's born of Jewish descent. And that little baby is going to bring salvation to the world. That little baby named Jesus is going to make eternity with God possible for you and I. And God is absolutely determined, I'm going to make this happen. Again, you got the people on the ship. That represents us. We're free to make all sorts of decisions. We make dumb decisions. We make good decisions. We sin. We rebel. We cause a mutiny. We harm one another. We do dumb things as people, don't we? We are morally, morally responsible for that. But remember, God's committed to getting the ship to its destination. And that's not going to stop no matter what we do. So despite Haman and King Xerxes making this decree, all the Jews are going to die. God's saying, no, no, no. The ship is going to get to where salvation comes to the world. That's not going to happen. And this is the sovereignty of God. That God is still in control even of the wicked things. That they don't, they don't thwart God's plans. That God has a plan and a purpose and, and what we do is not going to stop it. And this is where I want us to, to wrestle with understanding the sovereignty of God. That we may not understand how all things work out, but God is in control of all things, of all people, of all places, of all times. Because when we begin to understand the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that becomes a refuge for us to rest in. When we understand that God is sovereign and in control, that that becomes a safe harbor that we can, we can uh, anchor our faith in the midst of every trial, of every difficulty. We still know God is still in control, and I can trust that. That God's sovereignty, of God's control, is a hiding place in, when the storms come. That if we would just believe that God is Lord over all things, that he is utterly and comprehensively and completely in control. That God will not fail to keep his promises, no matter how the odds are stacked against him. We have to have that, that, that full belief that God is sovereign and in control. The truth is, the Bible says that God will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he says. That if we walk with God, or maybe we don't walk with God, but if we are a believer, that he walks with us. There's times when we walk away from God. Times when we say, God, I'm going to do things my own way. God, I'm not going to follow you. Listen, the moment you stop and you turn around and repent, God is right there. He's always been. Because the Bible says that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is always faithful faithful to us. Listen, the fear and anxiety, like that's prevalent in our society. I know there's many of us in this room who struggle with fear and anxiety. You know what the most common command in the Bible is? Fear not. Again and again and again, fear not. But you know what I find? Every time I study the Bible, almost every time it says fear not, he always follows it up with why. Fear not, for I am with you. Read it. How many times do you see that? Fear not, for I am with you. God is with you. You know what the spiritual medicine for fear is? You know how God helps you overcome your fear? It's to understand the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. You know how you begin to, to, to get rid of the anxiety in your life? 
you have a hefty dose of God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that God is with you, that God is working things out. You may not understand it, but God is still sovereign. And this is where Mordecai and Esther are in. They're in this dire and difficult and impossible circumstance. You know what hope they have? Their hope is not a bunch of principles to make their life better. Their hope is not a bunch of uh, principles to, to make everything great in their life. Their hope is simply the fact that God is with them. That God is still in control. That God is present. That God doesn't leave us. That God doesn't forsake us. That God doesn't betray us. That God doesn't abandon us. That is their hope. That is what allows them to get up and face the next day when they have this looming genocide in front of them. God is with us. It's life-changing when we begin to understand and live our life actually believing those things. So now we just said this. Mordecai just said, listen, God's going to do it anyway. Esther, whether you go and before the king or not, listen, God's going to prevail. God's going to, to win in this situation. So what does it have to do with our own personal responsibility? And here's where I want us to see the incredible way these two things relate. You've got God's sovereignty. God's going to win. And there's also this personal responsibility. What does my decision have to do with that? Third thing I love about this is going to teach us that God invites us. God invites us to make our lives matter. God invites us to be a part of the greatest story ever told, right? I mean, Mordecai, Mordecai says, Esther, I want you to think back to all these circumstances in your life. I want you to think back about how you were orphaned and how I raised you. I want you to think back about how you weren't really walking with God and, and you went and had this one night stand with a king and, and the king decided to make you queen. And, and, and I want you to think about all these circumstances. And he says, they were all out of your control. Verse 14 says, Esther, who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Perhaps God was orchestrating all these things just for this one moment. And this is what we call a defining moment. Where Esther has a choice in front of her. Do I identify as one of God's people? Or do I continue living a life of ease and comfort in the king's palace? She makes her choice. Verse 15, she says, Mordecai, you need to gather all the Jews. Gather everybody together, and I want you to fast for me. And I want to, again, we're going to stop right here for just a second. We like the story of, of Esther. God's preparing to do something beautiful through Esther. Esther is one person that God's going to do something tremendous through. But I want you to recognize that she's not alone. Right? She needs God's people. She's got God's people on their side. Say, hey, I, I'm going to fast with you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to encourage you. And this is, listen, there's no lone wolves in life. We think, well, I can just go and, and change the world by myself. No, you need a group of people behind you, supporting you, encouraging you, praying for you. Let me just speak to the church. Like, are you committed to the body of Christ? Do you have people on your side who are walking through life with you? Encouraging you and praying with you? Because that's where we see Esther. She's going to do something great for the kingdom of God. She's going to put herself on the line. And you notice she's got all these people behind her, praying for her, encouraging her. She says, hey, Mordecai, I want you to gather all the people. I want you to, to have them fast for three days. She said, I'm going to go to the king. 
And if I die, I die. That is what I call faith. That is faith right there. Faith is a verb. Faith is an action. Faith has feet. Faith is something that throws pens. And faith is something that that bears fruit. there's, There's evidence of faith. And Esther, she, at this moment, she chose, hey, I claim to have faith, and now I'm going to prove that I have faith. I'm going to choose to surrender. I'm going to choose to stand up. I'm going to take a stand for God. And God is going to be prepared to do something remarkable through her life. The reality of it, history has been changed and transformed because of people just like Esther. People who God orchestrated things in their life for, to, for them to make a major impact if, if they will just take a stand for the things of God. I mean, I think about my little lifetime. I mean, I look at my life and think, God, what are you doing here? I mean, I adopted as a young child. Had a dad who was legally blind growing up. Dad died when I was uh, nine, ten years old. Died when I was young. I found myself growing up and I found myself like, you know, everybody's supposed to fit into the culture. And I kind of find myself, well, I don't really fit in. I don't, I'm not like everybody else. I'm a, I'm a little bit different. I, I'm not satisfied with just being like everybody else. I had a mom who loved me unconditionally. I look at all these circumstances. I look at, at 22 years old, I get hired to run Madison House. I'm a, I have no clue what I'm doing. And they say, Kevin, we want you to go run this inner city youth center. I'm like, what does that mean? I have no clue. And I can look at all these things in my life. Say, man, I think God was preparing me to be in a church just like this. To be in a church that doesn't just do church for the sake of doing church. To be in a church that isn't just say, let's come to church and be okay together. And just put on these fake faces and act like everything's perfect. To be a church where you can be a little bit on the outside. You can be different. Or we can come and have diversity amongst the body of Christ. Where you don't have to have your life all together to follow after him. I think God orchestrated all these things in my life for me to be a part of a church like this. To create an environment where you don't have to fake it. We can struggle with where we are and still follow after God. People from all walks in life, whether you're rich or poor, black, brown, or white, whatever it happens to be, that you can come and worship together. See, I see God orchestrating those things in my life for this moment, for this place. Listen, the story of Esther is a reminder to us to never underestimate the power of God working through a single person. Somebody who surrenders to his will. Somebody who stands up and says, listen, I'm going to take a stand for the things of God. Never underestimate the power of what God can do through a person like that. Listen, these defining moments, they are going to be ours as well. Every one of us, we're going to have an opportunity to have these defining moments. Listen, let me tell you what, there's not going to be a celestial shout for you to take a stand. Right? There's no, there's no flash of lightning saying, hey, now's your turn. Make a stand. We have defining moments that may not be with all the lights and all the glimmer and all the evidence. But there are purposes. 
around us. There are needs around us. There are opportunities around us waiting for people like you and I to step up, to make a stand, and to make our life truly count, regardless of the risk. That we would be like Esther. Well, if I perish, I perish. If I'm ridiculed, I'm ridiculed. Well, if I'm laughed at, oh, well, I'm laughed at. Well, if I'm fired, well, I'm fired. Well, if I go broke, well, I go broke. Because we risk our lives for what truly matters. This idea uh, about making our lives truly matter. You ever notice how good intentions, they they don't really do anything. I mean, we can be full of good intentions. In fact, churches become very good at theories, right? Like we sit in our pews and we have these great theories on how to evangelize. We have these great theories on on theology. We have these great theories on how to change the world. But listen, we're not rewarded by theories. We're rewarded because of the deeds, right? And some of us need to hear this today. Some of us need to be challenged to move out of the safety of theory, to move out of the safety of the pew and into the real world reality that we would take a risk with our lives to make a difference. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, get up and do something. Take a stand. Because it's the deeds that matter. It's the deeds that make the difference. And if you've been in a situation where you're kind of like Esther, where you're, well, I claim to love God, but maybe there's some compromise in my life. Maybe there's not much evidence to back up what I believe. Maybe today, maybe it's a challenge to you. Today's one of those defining moments for you that you would stop claiming it, but today you would actually begin to back it up. I claim to love God, so I'm going to stand up. I'm going to plant my feet in the things of God and say, this is who I'm going to be. Some of you are going to be doubters. Some of you are going to say, well, what difference can one person make? Let me ask you this. What kind of difference did Jesus make? Right? I mean, God so loved the world that he did something about it. God didn't create a committee to try and figure out the best way to help people out. God, he didn't theorize that it'd be great if somebody would come and rescue humanity. God didn't grieve our waywardness and our sinfulness. He didn't hang his head in sorrow. He did something. He sent his son to the cross that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, folks, the question is not what do you think about Christ? The question is, what have you done about what you think? The issue isn't how do you feel about Jesus? How do you feel about what Jesus has done? The issue is what have you actually done about it? Listen, who knows? all the circumstances in your life. Why are you here today? Perhaps it's for such a time as this. For you and I to take a stand. Identify with Christ. Follow him. And today we have an opportunity just like Esther did. Change the course of our lives. For such a time as this pray for you.